Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Patron Xavier in France asked me to talk about Winnicott. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Yeah, Patron Xavier. I love Donald Winnicott. I have since the early days of my master's degree. When I first came across him and his teachings, I very much uh, was gravitated toward it. My The very first theory that I fell in love with was his theory that he was a part of object relations. Yeah, so he's one of the greats. Perhaps he um, one of the most interesting figures in our field in a lot of ways. And he he's hugely influential. He was he was a part of a of a huge shift in the way that psychology and psychoanalysis looked at humans. He he played a huge role in countertransference understanding. In, in a lot of ways, he set the stage for what we're all about today. But perhaps the most interesting part about his career is that he used he used radio to spread his ideas about parenting. He had a show on the BBC in Britain called The Ordinary Mother and Her Baby. The Ordinary Mother and Her Baby. <laughs> he, he had over 600 episodes, which is crazy. I mean, this podcast hasn't had 600 episodes, I don't think. And you can listen to him on the internet. Just Google it. It's so fascinating to hear these, these episodes because they go back to geez, I don't know, the mid-century, some, some point last time. Um, can you imagine this? Uh, his, his, uh, he, was, he was broadcast all over Britain talking about child psychoanalysis. Um, it's crazy. Um, he talked about how to help children develop. He gave a lot of advice, actually. He gave a lot of specific advice, like don't send your seven-year-old to boarding school, which was sort of like the dream of all parents in Britain at the time was to have enough money to send your young child to boarding school so they, they could become proper British people. But what Winnicott was observing was that this was actually harming children. It, it turned children into these kind of immature robots, and um, which I could absolutely see happening. So it's interesting to think about Winnicott on the radio, you know, once a week or something, or I don't know how often, probably more than once a week. But anyway, he, he's on the radio talking about things, and, and, um, and it makes me think that I am similar to Winnicott, because here I am, you know, I like to yammer into a microphone and broadcast my thoughts out, you know, to everyone, just, just like he did. He was a super influential British psychoanalyst who will go down in history as, you know, one of the 10 most influential people in our field. And I'm just a stupid American who never influenced anyone and won't ever influence anyone. But aside from that, you know, we're, we're practically identical, me and Winnicott. We both, we both talk into a microphone. So welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron yet, then you have to become a patron of this podcast to listen to this episode. If you want to hear me yammer into the microphone about Donald Winnicott and all of his theories and blah, 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 you got to become a patron by going to patreon.com. So do that now. Do it now. Go to Patreon. Go to Patreon. 
become a patron. All right, welcome to the patron zone, people. Love ya, love ya, love ya. All right, this episode is for patron Xavier, but it's also for patron Jacob and patron Maya, or Maja, I think it's pronounced Maya, who all have been asking me to talk about object relations. All right, Donald Winnicott. He was a British psychoanalyst. He was one of the founders of object relations theory. He was born in 1896, died in 1971. Ooh, he died just after I was born. So you could say that I was, I am the reincarnation of Donald Winnicott. You know, never know. His father was a wealthy merchant, so he grew up in privilege. And it seems that his mother suffered from depression throughout his entire life, particularly during his childhood. His experiences with his mother being depressed seems to have driven him into the profession. At first, as a young man, he was a pediatrician. He was a physician and a pediatrician and, you know, worked with kids. And then later, he became a child psychoanalyst uh, during the 1930s. And he studied under Melanie Klein, who was at the height of her powers at the time. He contributed so much to our field. He stayed within psychoanalysis, but also broke from psychoanalysis by not emphasize, by not emphasizing all the Freudian erotic stuff, like the psychosexual stages. He wasn't really into that stuff, which I can totally appreciate. He shifted our thinking toward the quality of the relationship between the parent and the child. So that was the whole object relations thing. Fairburn and, and others were critical in getting us to focus on parenting as a major factor, if not the factor, in the way a child develops in terms of their mental health and their personality and well-being and all those kinds of things. These are ideas that we totally take for granted today, but at the time, not so. And Winnicott, Fairburn, others were critical in helping at least psychotherapy and perhaps psychology and beginning to look at that. His ideas were actually kind of simple, which I appreciate. He wrote about his ideas in a complicated way sometimes, but his ideas were fairly simple. His ideas asserted that while the mother is just doing her regular job of being a mother, she is helping the child develop in a healthy way. And again, this might seem like, well, duh, but at the time it wasn't duh. It was, it was um, kind of revolutionary to, to say that mothering created the personality or gave children the psychological uh, foundations that would help them later in life was, was a big deal. It, it was kind of empowering in a way to mothers because at the time, again, mothers were the primary uh, caregiving parent at the time because the dad was out working. So he was, he was, you know, he really, he talked a lot about mothering. He didn't talk about fathering very much because again, at the time it was mostly mothers taking care of kids. And so what he would say is, you know, while, while mothers are just being mothers, they are playing a cru a critical um, part in the development of a of a human being and their psychology. You know, as as the mother feeds the child, as the mother bathes the child, as she holds the child, 
she is helping the child develop. He used the term holding, quote-unquote holding, to refer to the supportive environment that parents provide for children and for the supportive relationship that theirs form with their clients. So parents provide a holding environment for their kids and therapists provide holding environments for their clients. The parent physically holds a child, right? Therapists don't physically hold their clients uh, very often, but parents physically hold a child and the parent provides a holding environment for the child's experiences and their emotions. So it's both physical and emotional, this holding environment. I frequently use this metaphor when I'm trying to inspire supervisees and trainees. The word holding is just so perfect. When I hear the word holding, I imagine a big bowl, a big, you know, like huge salad bowl or something that that the therapist provides in therapy that holds all the client's material, no matter how scary it is. The therapist remains stable and mature and provides a holding environment for the client. I tell supervisees this when they are trying to fix their clients. They'll come to me and they'll say, I had this client and she was telling me all this crazy stuff and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And what I say is just provide a holding environment, as Winnicott said. Just hold it. When when a child falls down and is crying because they think the world has come to an end, because children do. When, when, when bad things happen, when scary things happen, to the child, it feels like the world is coming to an end. And but the world isn't coming to an end, right? And you know it as a parent. And so you provide a holding environment. You're there with the child and you're not freaking out and you're not rejecting the child. You're there, but you're also not um, feeling their feelings, right? You don't feel like the world is coming to an end. You're not coming apart. You're loving and holding. Well, in the same way, a client needs that from their therapist. They need you to be calm and differentiated, as Bowen would put it. They need you to be there and caring, but and they need you to not freak out, but they need you to hold it, uh, metaphorically speaking. They need you to, to be close enough so that you're holding, but not, but you, but not freaking out as a result. And so that's, that's a, a very important thing that Winnicott provided. And it doesn't sound very psycho- and analysty, right? It sounds very humanistic, which Winnicott was a precursor to humanistic ideas. Winnicott thought that all the world's problems could be solved by good parenting. If all children were raised by loving and mature parents, then all the world's problems would go away, according to Winnicott. And he saw the world's problems firsthand, you know? He saw World War One, World War Two. I think he might have even served in World War One. He saw the rise of Nazism, the rise of fascism. He saw massive amounts of racism and sexism. He thought that if people were parented better as, as a world, no one would have the urge to be fascists. No one would have the urge to become alcoholics. No one would have the urge to harm other human beings. No one would have the urge to be antisocial or commit crimes, which I have to say I agree with wholeheartedly. Now, I don't think good parenting is the only solution to our problems, but I think it actually is a major part of it. Most of the people I come into contact with who exhibit behaviors that 
bother society have been mistreated and traumatized and not parented well. So, you know, okay. He had a few famous ideas. For example, the transitional object. Most therapists know about the transitional object. The transitional object is an item like a security blanket or a teddy bear that the child uses to feel safe even when the parent isn't around. So it's a it's an it's a transitional object of security. So the attachment object is the parent and when the parent is around you need a transitional object object like a blanket or a teddy bear. And it's normal that children will establish transitional objects according to Winnicott as they individuate from their parents. And Winnicott also talked about how adults will have transitional objects as well. So it's all normal. Another major concept that he talked about was the good enough mother. This was perhaps, aside from his holding environment, the good enough mother is probably his other most famous idea. He phrased it this way so parents wouldn't feel the pressure to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. Um you know, in this simple way of putting it, he beautifully communicates that parents don't need to be perfect. They they just need to be good enough, which implies that parents are allowed to make mistakes and, and are frankly expected to make mistakes. So good enough parents provide a holding environment for their child. They provide a loving environment for their child. They allow the child to feel omnipotent when the child is very young so the child can develop normally. Because later, the child will slowly realize that they are not omnipotent, and so that's normal. So Winnicott would give advice to, to parents and say, when your child wants to, when your infant, you know, we're talking like six months, 18 months, when your child wants to feel omnipotent, then just allow that. You know, just, just eventually the child will learn that they're not the center of the universe and but for now, when they're an infant, let them believe that because that's that's an important phase of their development that they're um, gratified in that way by their parents. And, and but and he would talk about how if you don't do that, then ch- children will grow up to be screwed up somehow. And this is similar to Kohut's ideas of early development, by the way. Here's a quote from his book from 1951, Transitional Objects and Transitional Phenomena. Quote, The good enough mother starts off with an almost complete adaptation to her infant's needs. And as time proceeds, she adapts less and less completely, gradually according to the infant's growing ability to deal with her failure. So this is one of the few passages that is easy to understand in his writing, by the way, but it's pretty straightforward. So again, the good enough mother starts off with an almost complete adaptation to her infant's needs. So he's using the word adaptation here to refer to like accommodation, essentially. So the mother, the good enough mother, and we can sort of say good enough parent at this point, since in modern times, fathers also parent their kids, but I guess not back then. Um, the, the good enough parent has an almost 100% accommodation of the infant's needs. When the infant is hungry, you feed it. When the infant uh, is uncomfortable, you do what you can to make it comfortable. When the infant 
wants to sleep, you let it sleep. When the infant wakes up, you wake up with the, you know, like there's this a hundred percent. And then, and that's important to do for the child because it needs that. And then as time goes on, the parents accommodate less and less, but it's gradual, right? So if it's a hundred percent on day one, then on, you know, year five, it should be, you know, at, at like 20 or 30% still or whatever, you know, you say. So good enough parents recognize a number of things. One, they recognize that children are psychologically fragile. This is important. And again, at the time, this was a novel idea. I think for most of us, we understand this because we've just had Winnicott's and other people's ideas sort of beat into our head. But at the time, there was this belief, which is just when you hear, right, when you hear like, people talk and, and writings are back that it's just bizarre the way they, they thought children were essentially little adults. Many people did. And what Winnicott is trying to say here is no, 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 no. Children are extremely fragile from their point of view. They have no idea what is happening around them. They can't even walk in the beginning. They can't feed themselves. They have no idea what the world is. And so everything is just terrifying. So parents have to accommodate children during this time. Um, and you can't, and you have to recognize that children are fragile and just sponges of their environment. And so you just have to be very careful and, you know, really hold children very carefully when they're very young. Also good enough parents allow children to have negative emotions. This was perhaps way more relevant during his time in, you know, early 20th century Britain in that it was very proper to raise kids in a way that shamed anger or, or really just any emotion at all, frankly, you know, whether it was jubilation or whatever. And so Winnicott was saying, in my observation, good enough parenting actually involves allowing kids to be angry, allowing them to be rageful, allowing them to be jubilant, allowing them to play. Um, and good enough parents, what they do is, is they don't freak out. They provide a holding environment for that child, regardless of what emotion they're having. Now, I'm sure Winnicott would say, if the child starts beating their younger sister, then of course that's not okay. But if they're just having an emotion then let it, you know, just be there with them as they have that emotion. You don't, you don't have to shut it down, which was the practice during 1940s Britain at the time. Good enough parents also allow children to play. He was big on play, which is just so forward thinking of him at the time that he would I, take a risk within his super stuffy um, profession of psychoanalysis in Britain at the time and just say, you know what? Play is important for children and adults. And so he was big on providing advice to parents saying, you know, don't be so strict again, which was the practice I'm guessing in 1940s Britain, you know, trying to raise proper British kids. And he was saying, let, let kids play around a little bit, you know, let, let them don't have so many rules because he said that, if you have so many rules and are so uh, 
rejecting of kids being themselves, then what kids will do is they'll just, they'll put up a false self. That was another one of his ideas. It, if you impose all these robotic rules on kids, they end up suppressing their true self and presenting a false self on the outside just so they can cope with all of your crazy strict rules. And what this does is it creates pathology later in life because their true self is being suppressed and they're not really living their life, which doesn't allow them to exhibit or enact the spontaneity of life that is necessary for health. He also was big on making sure that parents don't impose their needs on children. He wanted children to be um, allowed to be children. So in the family therapy world, we call this parentification. We don't want kids to be parentified. You, you don't want to bother children with your problems. You want to provide a stable environment so kids can be carefree as kids are supposed to be because they're fragile and they can't cope with adult problems. And so you want to protect them from the world of adults. Again, because children are fragile and they, they need time to play and be creative and be themselves in order to develop. Um, okay, so his approach to therapy. He talked a lot about his approach to therapy. He, re- he just really, you know, talked about everything. He, he published a number of books, gave a number of talks, obviously. His approach to therapy, as I was saying earlier, kind of predated or was the progenitor to the humanistic movement uh, that would happen later in his life in that he recommended that the therapist just remain patient with the client and provide a holding environment, which is, which is, very, which is very humanistic in a lot of ways, very Rogerian, actually. So he believed that if the therapist listens well and remains patient, this is important, you have to remain patient, and if the therapist doesn't get upset at the client, then the client is able to get their needs met, needs that were not met when they were children. So you're, you're as a, as a Winnicottian therapist, you're trying to account for uh, ineffective or inadequate parenting that they, the client experienced when they were a child. So in essence, you know, if a 50 year old man comes in and, and starts uh, and what Winnicott would say was playing, he, he considered adult clients and, analysts would play in therapy even though they were talking but it was a form of sort of adult play and so um, as the 50 year old is playing and talking about their life and maybe complaining about his wife or work or something the Winnicottian therapist provides a holding environment that allows the client to just explore those feelings and to uh, discover things for himself essentially so here's, here's a quote from, from Winnicott. It is only in recent years that I have become able to wait and wait for the natural evolution of the transference arising out of the patient's growing trust in the psychoanalytic technique and setting and to avoid breaking up this natural process by making interpretations. So it's a long sentence, but um, let me say that again. It is only in recent years, so he's acknowledging that he was kind of a fuck up in earlier years. <laughs> so it is only in recent years that I have become able to wait and wait for the natural evolution 
of the transference arising out of the patient's growing trust. So he's talking about the transference that a client has that is positive toward a, a, th- a therapist. And to avoid breaking up this natural process by making interpretations. So the analytic technique is, for, you know, it's dependent on a small set of things, one of them being interpreting uh, what you are hearing from the client. So what he's saying is you have to, you have to hold off on providing interpretations because you need to provide that holding environment for the client to fully explore themselves. Again, this is extremely humanistic. He goes on, it appalls me to think how much deep change I have prevented or delayed in patients in a certain classification category by my personal need to interpret. So he, in this sentence, he is, again, it appalls him to think how many, how, how many times he screwed up with paths with past patients. <laughs> and this is again, not completely unprecedented, but not typical of writing at the time and really not typical of writing now. Uh, so again, it appalls me to think how much deep change I have prevented or delayed in patients by, by my personal need to interpret if only we can wait, the patient arrives at understanding creativity and with immense joy. And I now enjoy this joy more than I used to enjoy the sense of having been clever. <laughs> it's a clunky sentence, but I totally get what he's saying. And I say this to myself all the time, and I say it to my supervisees, which is you have to divorce yourself from the need to be clever as a therapist. Being smart as a therapist is not helpful. Being clever as a therapist is not helpful to the client. But a lot of times therapists, particularly novice therapists, feel this need to prove themselves worthy as a therapist by coming across as clever or smart to a, to a client. But that is just your own need to be, feel that way. <laughs> that has nothing to do with actual helpfulness, you know? I mean, when was the last time someone was clever around you and you were like, Oh, you're so clever. Wow. That really transformed me. <laughs> you know, that it, it's just, it's a, you know, egocentric way of looking at it, but a lot of therapists do that. And frankly, I blame our profession for that because we, in our training programs, if in, in some ways give trainees the impression that intelligence and cleverness and knowledge is something that you need to demonstrate to your clients. And it's just not, you know. Um, But anyway, and so Winnicott not only recognized this, but he took responsibility. He's not blaming anyone else for this. He's saying, look, this is me. Uh, I've been trying to be clever with my clients and by providing these clever interpretations, but I've been totally screwing things up (laughs) and I've been interfering with clients' natural process. Again, totally humanistic, this natural process, this emerging need to grow from within the client. You need to step out of the way from from that process. Uh, And his last sentence here, I think I interpret mainly to let the patient know the limits of my understanding. (laughs) I think I interpret mainly to let the patient know how smart I am, is what he's saying. And just great, you know, just so... So wonderful. Um, 
He also played a critical part in our current understanding of countertransference. Winnicott, in one of his early papers in 1949, it was a, he wrote a very famous paper on countertransference. It's called Hate in the Countertransference. Hate in the Countertransference, 1949. Many people look to this paper that he wrote as initiating the next phase of our understanding of countertransference. So everything that predated this paper is what we would call the classic, the classical um, phase of countertransference understanding that really dominated for, for decades and decades. And then Winnicott comes out with this paper and everything started to change. Of course, in our field, everyone doesn't change at once and things are squishy because other people are involved. And there's other people that kind of predated Winnicott. So, because there's thousands of contributors to this idea. But Winnicott is pointed to by many as a pivotal, and this paper in particular in 49 is a pivotal uh, uh, part of the story. Okay. Winnicott described his, in this paper, he described his countertransferential reactions of rage toward a, a difficult teen uh, kid, a boy, patient of his. So this was actually quite uh, shocking at the time. Again, he's just so authentic, right? Like any other humanistic person, he's just being real. And he's in this paper, he's talking about how much he hates this teenage boy because this teenage boy is just being such a dick to him. <laughs> and, and again, he's, he's not presenting his false self. He's being real. He's presenting his true self. He's not being a proper British person in this instant. He's, he's being honest and authentic and, and emotional. And in this paper, he's talking about how he hates this teen boy. He wrote that he even became um, angry with the, with the client. And he thought that because he acknowledged his own countertransference and his own anger, he was able to control it better. So he was, he was saying, I discovered that all the, you know, I have feelings and it's okay to have these feelings. And when I acknowledge my, feel, my feelings and accept my feelings, then I'm much better able to control it, which makes me a better therapist. So although this might sound extremely elementary to us now, it wasn't so elementary back then. Psychoanalysts back then tended to act as though they didn't have any feelings, as if they were above feelings. Not all, not all psychoanalysts, and even Freud wasn't really like this. But the the neo Freudians or the the you know post Freudians, people who were Freudian in the forties, were were generally kind of like this, because culturally speaking, within the field of, of psychotherapy, it meant. If you're having a bunch of feelings, particularly hatred toward your client, then that meant you weren't a good therapist, and it meant that you needed to go back to, to analysis to rid yourself of those feelings. But Winnicott comes along and just acknowledges and accepts that he has feelings, and he doesn't try to get rid of them. He just acknowledges them and says that it's okay to have these feelings, and this was revolutionary at the time. It, it was written at a perfect time because there was a lot, there was the kind of zeitgeist at the time. There, there were a lot of people that were kind of thinking this, but they needed this paper to kind of rally behind. And many others came to this paper and held it up and says, yes, Winnicott, he's awesome. Uh, 
And this began the new phase of our understanding of countertransference. And he, he wrote in a way that made us all feel okay to feel difficult feelings toward our clients, feelings like hatred or judgment or disdain. He said that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to react badly to clients. He normalized that. He would he fully self-disclosed as a you know master psychoanalyst, as you know a preeminent object relationist, that he has feelings and that he sometimes those feelings get to him and he it affects his work and he ends up making mistakes with his clients. I think this is all part of his exposure and, and work with children. Because when you work with kids, it's a wholly different experience. You're, you're much more unbridled, shall we say. It, when, I, when I've worked with kids um, in play, you know, when you're playing with kids, they kind of, dr- if, you, if you're doing it right, you get dragged into their weird play world. And, and kids have very strange worlds of play. And you very quickly lose that, shell that you put up that says, I'm a respectable therapist. <laughs> you're on the ground, rolling around, making, you're screaming, you're pretending, you're, you're, you know, saying funny noises. And, and, and in that world, I think Winnicott discovered what true health was, which was not uh, acting as though one does not have feelings and was acting as though, of course, we all have feelings, and that's okay. That was, a, that was a big thing of his. Now, Winnicott wasn't the first to invent really any of these ideas. I just want to say that. Whenever people say that, you know, this one person invented all I mean, even Freud didn't even really invent psychoanalysis in a way. And so I just want to say there are a lot of other figures we could turn to who um, – sort of built the stepping stones that led Winnicott to write his 1949 paper. And also he could have written that paper and everyone could have ignored it. So the people who supported it also, um, other authors who came forward and said, yeah, this is great. Um, they also contributed as well. So I just want to point that out. But Winnicott is a, just a huge looming figure in psychotherapy uh, because of his, uh, you know, his work in object relations, his his emphasis on parenting, his uh, his ability to talk to parents in a way that they understood. This was a big deal because psychoanalysis is crazy complicated, you know, and most people had no idea what analysts were talking about. I mean, just read old, you know, early twentieth century analyst publications. It's crazy. You're just like, what? It's not crazy. It's not complicated. It's not, it's not, it's just written in a different language. Essentially you have to be in that world to, to know the vernaculars that they're using anyway. But Winnicott comes along, he's a psychoanalyst, trained psychoanalyst, and he goes on the radio and just starts talking in very plain English, how mothers can, raise their kids well, how mothers can reflect emotions, help kids with emotion. He didn't use these terms, but emotional regulation, how they can, how they need to pay attention to their kids' needs. And really a lot of parents, mothers maybe in particular at the time, actually 
wanted an excuse to do what they felt was instinctual, which was to love their kid and accommodate their kid. And uh, the prevailing culture was don't accommodate your child because that'll spoil the child. But of course, what that does is it just makes a child put up a false self on the outside while on the inside is this raging, you know, broiling emotional mess. And so a lot of parents, when they heard Winnicott's ideas, it felt intuitive to them. And so they really took to it, which is just, it's great, you know? So I love Winnicott. He was huge in my, particularly when I, when I was in graduate school. So this would have been, I don't know, 95, 96. And, you know, I'm being exposed to all these different theories. When I came across Winnicott, that's, and Fairburn, that's when I was like, oh, yes. What's this, what is it? What's this theory called? Object relations? Never heard of it. Uh, I think this is what I like. And so, yeah, Winnicott's great. Highly recommend. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Hope that scratches your itch, patron Xavier. Anything for you, patron? Please take care of yourself out there because you deserve it. Let me hold. I'm, I have, I'm going to get a big salad bowl of holding. I'm holding all of your issues, which means I'm not sure what that means because it's a podcast, but give me your issues. <laughs> um, no, but really, you know, uh, I care about you guys and I, you know, respond or read your emails and read your comments and respond back to you. And I really do hope that, uh, for the little bit of time you interact with me, that you can feel that sense of holding because I get that sense of holding from other people in my life, maybe other podcasts even. And so I want to reciprocate by giving back in that way. All right. So take care. 